Welcome to The Open Bell, a podcast for trumpet players, by trumpet players, and a cornet guy. I'm your host, Bill Stoneman, and I'm joined by my good friends and fellow trumpet geeks, Joey Tartell and Brian Appleby Weinberg. This episode of The Open Bell is brought to you by our good friend, Bryce Ferguson, the best equipped and dedicated musical instrument repair and restoration workshop in the UK. Covering every aspect from the smallest job to full restorations, silver and gold plating, relacquering, ultrasonic and chemical cleaning. Located in Edinburgh and Nottingham, Bryce Ferguson is the man for instrument repair. And now in full production, the Gig Spanner, the highly efficient bottle opener made from a real trumpet mouthpiece. Find Bryce on Facebook and order your Gig Spanner today. And by Guard Bags. Whether you need to stylishly protect one horn or many horns, Abby and the folks at Guard Bags have got you covered. The Guard Elite Triple is an incredible case and like their other products, has mid-case suspension for extra protection. Don't see what you need online? No problem. They love custom work and even made a large custom trumpet case for the one and only Joey Tartell that can hold a bass trumpet and several other horns. And oh yeah, it's pink. Go to www.guardbags.com to find your next case. And now a little about the show. We essentially have three segments. Warming up, couple things, and no offense. We'll use these segments to cover information that Joey, Brian, and I think is important. Gentlemen, shall we? This is a segment we call Warming Up. It gives us a chance to ease into the show by talking about some things that are on our radar. Brian, what have you got for us today? Well, Bill, I'm glad you asked. So, seeing as this is a trumpet <laughs> trumpet <laughs> podcast, we're definitely talking about cornet again. Oh, jeez, really? <laughs> so, uh, we agreed a couple of times ago that everybody should start on the cornet, and I agree. And the big cornet did you just method, agree with yourself? Yes. Yeah. I always okay. do that. He used his own agreement to bolster his agreement, his <laughs> argument that we agree. He's starting strong. Yes. Out of the gate, like a shot. Um, so uh, we go back to this Arben book that everybody uses all the time, right? Written by a cornet player. But Arben wasn't a cornet player initially, right? Mm -hmm. He studied with Davernay at the Paris Conservatory, mm -hmm. who was taught trumpet, valve trumpet, and natural trumpet. Right. So my question is, and so, and, and, uh, and Arben wrote, the treatise was published in 59, 1859, right? Which is the year Davernay retired from teaching. So did Arben wait until his teacher retired before he wrote it? Was it a way to get a gig? Or was he already there teaching? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but so my question is, do we really need to start everybody on trumpet technique wise or cornet technique wise, or is it just purely a sound and ergonomic issue? Um, and then my other question is, um, if we decide that we do that based on that we start them on cornet or start, you want to start, it doesn't matter what side of the issue you're on. My question is today, why are we still practicing Arben? That's a great question. I've actually been thinking a lot about this in regards to what I have my students do starting in college. So I'm not sure 
whether the start on cornet, you guys are the ones that are big promoters on that. Now, I can certainly see from the young age the ergonomic part of it, where if there are kids who are just too small to hold up a trumpet, they can start on the cornet. And I can certainly understand the sound part where you're saying if we can get them away from the harsh and brash trumpet sound from the beginning, that's a good thing that can carry with them musically when they make the switch to trumpet eventually. Those make sense to me. But now why are we still practicing Arben? becomes a very, very good question. And I think the answer is fairly simple. There's a lot of very, very good stuff in there. And it's it's something that we have that has good fundamentals built into it. There's like, okay, we're going to start right on playing some almost like long tone type stuff. At the beginning, we're going to do some simple rhythmic and simple scalar things. Hey, we've got scales over starting on, well, what used to be page 59. Can we talk a little about what there Tom and Jen have done to us? Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know we we like we like Tom well, Tom Hooten and, and Jen Marotta. Arben gave us. Don't get me wrong. Big note. Love the big notes. Love love it. The Can't page numbers. The page numbers. The page numbers are all different, and I'm yep. old, and I know the page numbers. So it's in the Arben book ways, I grew up right. with, the scales start on page fifty nine, and they've got all the major scales in there, and then there's there's some uh, melodies in the back. There's some very little lip slur type stuff that I think hints at something larger. There's double tonguing, there's triple tonguing, there's uh, melodies, there's solos. There's a lot of very, very good stuff. There's the characteristic studies, which we all like as etudes. There's good stuff in there. And I think that's why we keep using it. And it's for a, its time, that was the only technique that was available, right? So there, right. The, the trumpet technique books were fanfares. They weren't right. written like this. And right. so he saved all the trumpet players, a cornetist, saved all the trumpet players from a lifetime of just playing fanfares, actually developing technique. But now, go ahead, Bill. Well, I, just that, I, no, I, I agree with what you're saying, Joe. I think the value of Arben is the fact that it is this collection. It is this one-stop shopping, right? Like if it's the only book you can get, right? Or if you had to just get the one book, if you followed that, what is prescribed there, you would advance not only in the technical aspects of playing, but as a musician, because of the art of phrasing, right? Because of the because of the the technical yet musical challenges and themes and variations things at the back. So I, I think its value is that if you follow that as a prescription, is there another book like that? And I think that's why we go back to it. Is there anything else? There, there are other things that are similar but aren't They're laid similar. out nearly as well. You know, the, the St. Jacobs right. was, was very popular for an awful long time and has a, a lot of great music stuff in there and a lot of great technique. It's laid out. It's a little more uh, hit and miss as you go. So there's uh, some scalar things and then some characteristic studies and then some scalar things and uh, some lip slurs and then, you know, a solo. So it's a little harder to navigate, but there's a ton of great stuff in the St. Jacobs. It's a great book. So, but Brian, it, are, you, are you saying you don't like the idea that we go back to it so much or you're just... You're I'm just, just wondering. So I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm amazed at, at its staying power. It held up, right. That's a long time. And there's been a lot of stuff written by a lot of really smart people since then. Um, and is the only reason that we do it because it's, you just have to have one book when you're young. So is it a financial issue or is it, does it really have that staying power? And then, so then people, our colleague included, who would say, well, you don't practice. Clark today wouldn't be practicing Clark studies. Um, then... You, then you would say, well, maybe they would. Well, there's the question, important. right? If Arben were still alive today, would he stand by what he has? Or would he say, oh, man, there's so much other new stuff, you know? Well, I think there's more, but there's still a fundamental at play. 
you know, if you read the text, what's going on in the Arvin book, and he talks about, well, if you need to play up to high C, I mean, that's just <laughs> ludicrous. You just press a little bit harder and everything will work out. It's set, I mean, that's what it says. And right. certainly those kinds of things we have to go, well, yeah, that doesn't really hold up because I, what's the highest note in the Arvin's book maybe is around a high C. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's ludicrous to think, think that that's the only thing that you're going to. That's the limits of the range, or but if you look at the the double and triple tonguing parts of the book, those hold up pretty well. You know, those are good sections. Is a good mm-hmm. way to get started on double and triple tonguing, and like you're saying, the the theme and variation stuff at the end of the 150, uh, you know, melodies. Those are good, and the characteristic studies. Those hold up. These are good fundamental studies. Now, I'm not saying this is all you should do. But I have had the thought, and other people have had the idea of taking Arbin's and expanding it for the modern player. And I'm not really interested in that. We can leave Arbin where he is. But the idea of if we were going to write a complete conservatory for the modern trumpet player today, what would it look like? Right. right. That, I think that is something that would be wildly different than the Arbin book is. Yes. Absolutely. But I don't think that means that the Arbin's book isn't valuable. And would it start at a different point, right? Would it start with long tones on G for three or four pages? It depends on who your audience is. If you're yeah. starting, if you're thinking well, audience is, is, is beginners, then no. But, then if you're, no. but I've been thinking about this from the concept of, of college students, and then absolutely that's not where I would start. No. Yeah. Right. I mean, think about the nature of the rhythmic content of that book, even early on, right? that fit what the trumpet had been playing up until that time, and it kind of fit the music of the day. I mean, even just the rhythmic aspects of it would be have to be so much more complex than anything you'd write today, and just, just they, it just would be. Right. Right. Well, yeah, look how at, thick would that book be? Well, but look at Alan Vizzuti's mm-hmm. books. You know, he does a mm-hmm. good job of also laying out some fundamental approaches. You know, he looks at some uh, finger studies, tonguing articulation studies, but the etudes and stuff he writes are odd meter etudes and atonal etudes. He does include stuff that is much more uh, what we're playing now than just things in, in, in four, four, two, four, hey, and six, eight. It's pretty amazing. Right. You know? And even that's, it's, is, that's 30 years old. Right. I saw that manuscript on Gatala's stand when I was in college. Sure. Yeah. And how much of it is just this, this nostalgic sort of thing that this served me well this is something everyone does. It's the trumpet player's Bible. How many times we've heard that, right? Right. Um, and so I knew about it, and I'm going to do you a favor by making sure that you know about it. But I think that's part of it. I, I do think that if you're going to be a trumpet player and a professional trumpet player, that there is an expectation that you have a certain body of knowledge. And right or wrong, that body of knowledge includes knowing the Arbin's book, knowing the Clark book. Right. And if you don't know that, there is a perceived gap in your knowledge as far as a professional. So I, I think that knowing that history is valuable because it is part of our history and part of our rep. Not to say that it's the only thing that exists, but it is valuable. Yeah. And I want to go back to this other thing too about the cornet, um, starting kids on cornet, because for me it is about the sound thing primarily. That's it. But the ergonomics are there. I just, I just, you know, I get that part of it. Something kids are smaller, it's easier to hold up. But I think as a result, just the way that instrument responds, you're teaching better facility. You're teaching an ease of technique with that instrument that you might not be able to get with a trumpet. I think. Well, it's this is easy. my question. So Arben's playing at a time when he had access to a three valve trumpet, and and cornet was not that accepted. He designed this entire method around cornet study, and it's 
substantially increased the technical aspects of trumpet playing right at the same time but he was playing it all on cornet as a way to play these these solos that he was that he was touring around with mm-hmm. i find that i find that fascinating i also found it fascinating that Ar- that uh, clark wrote his first texts after he had already been out soloing and and he had been um and he'd already written his uh, his big solo like sounds from the hudson it's before any of the texts the elementary studies setting up drills or his clark studies so he wrote did he write those here's the question as a result of having to right maintain or sustain his own playing or this musical stuff that he had come up with did it inspire him to say i need to build a better system on which to play these pieces i i think it's that he needed to build a better system because he which I, he's, which I appreciate he redid I, I like his that. technique a lot during his during his career right i would much rather have a book from someone who has been thoughtful active and successful as a professional then someone says, hey, this might work. <laughs> right. So I like the idea that he's out there being successful and saying, hey, if you do that, I can show you how to do this. Yeah. And here's how. Now, that, as we all know, that's not always a one-to-one. Being a great player doesn't make you a great teacher. But if, you know, if we see Herbert L. Clark is out there and doing it, and then he writes this down and is thoughtful and says, listen, here's how to get here, I'm definitely going to give that a but read. Clark doesn't, Clark doesn't feed... Clark's technical stuff doesn't feed his musical stuff in the way that Arben's does. And this is, for me, the magic of the Arben book, right? You learn gruppettos. You learn intervals. You learn to double tongue with moving notes, right, and accented tones. And then all that stuff shows up again in the theme and variations, in the characteristic studies. Right. That's true, but his the book that we... Uh, used most is called Clark Technical Studies. It's not called Clark Musical Studies. Right. He's not trying to do that, but he is trying to articulate. Most people just don't read his text. I love all six of those exercises. I think... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I remember the first time I was at Westchester and I was doing like a warm-up master class and I showed everybody what I do on Clark number two, which is, you know, slurred once, single tongue once, double tongue, then the double tongue changing notes. Double stops. someone asked... (laughs) asked me in the master class, how did you ever come up with the idea of double-tonguing on those exercises? And I said, oh, this is very simple. I read the paragraph on top of number two. Read the says, part where he says double-tongue. Nobody reads this stuff. Nobody reads it. Right. We've had these books forever. And, you know, he says, you know, start with slurring and then when comfortable, lightly articulate and then double-tongue. It's right there. Yeah. I didn't invent it. I so read play, play it and then just as possible, it. Right, softly as possible. Yeah. yeah. All that. Yeah, you're a genius for coming up with that. Yeah. I, I, well, I just wish there were more you. than six of them. That's all. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> hey, you're twice. You're ahead of twice. The, uh, yeah. Twice ahead of the trouble players. They think it stops after three. Yeah, yep, and those two Arben characteristic studies are awesome. <laughs> I wish there were more of those. If he'd written like twelve or fourteen, it would be even better. That would be amazing. <laughs> Yeah, Brian, this is a great point. I Sorry. love this. Okay. Was it good? No, I do. That took up a lot of warming up. It's okay. I'm shot. We absolutely feel warmed up. <laughs> shot. Yeah, that's longer than you typically warm up. <laughs> Much longer. All right, Joey, what do you got? Or do you want, do you want me to go? It's up to you. I'll go. You decide. All right, you go. If we're going to talk about, if we're going to call this warming up, let's talk about a little bit uh, what we have to do now, which is practice mutes. I've been thinking a lot about practice mutes as I, uh, like know. a lot of us, have been sitting at home. And I think I, I've seen what people talk about online as I read a lot. And I'm seeing a lot of people talk about the evil of practice mutes. And frankly, I, 
they're just I just don't find them evil. Like mm-hmm. I think they're necessary. We have and there's the time where we have to use them. And it, you can still be productive. You can still get a lot of stuff done. The idea that once you put something in there that suddenly, you know, everything changes just isn't true. I think I spent almost probably most of my time practicing in my 20s was in hotel rooms and in apartments. So most of my practice time was in practice mute. And I was still progressing, getting better and working. Yeah. So I want to get that out there. Are you guys got thoughts about this? Was well, that the I old think- Spivak mute? Oh, man. The, the Spivak, like, little yes, golden Yes, that's white the one thing. I had in the 80s. That's all yeah. anybody had of back course, then. Of course, yeah. 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 Until the Peacemaker came out. It came with a stethoscope. <laughs> with the stethoscope. Where you could right. plug in. Yeah. That was a good mute. I used yeah. that one for years. I think it's especially good if you hate your sound. I think <laughs> <laughs> even on just, just if you hate your sound on a certain day, you know, you decide it's a great day for the practice mute. No, I, it has value. I think I think what you bring up is an important point, which is if you if you learn how to use it, if you but if you go in there and you try to generate the same amount of sound or decibels of the practice mute, I think it can be damaging. I think you can I think you can hurt yourself. Sure, but, but I, that that could be said by playing open bell in different rooms. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to if you're practicing outside and trying to fill up the room, you're you're in trouble. Well, wasn't that the, what the silent <laughs> brass really filling up the room? <laughs> yeah. Great. Isn't that what the silent brass thing tried to eliminate was that right? The well, the peacemaker actually did that first. Right. They had the the stethoscope and then the the silent brass had the way of plugging in, you know, even with an electronic or just with some earbuds and then to literally hear yourself you know right. more similar to open and it does a, a better job of it but and mm-hmm. you know i've got probably three or four different practice mutes that that i've used they work well i'm not just saying this because they're one of our sponsors but the schmute mute really i mean those things it's pretty amazing it's very good and especially for piccolo uh and flugel by one. by far uh, the piccolo one and the but flugel the pic- one also fits my bass trumpet which i the flugel appreciate right yeah combo yeah, yeah the flugel bass trumpet um, practice mute combo but as far as a piccolo practice mute that's it's pretty amazing absolutely it really is i'm just uh, so thankful that they that the technology and the industry has 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 come out with these and uh, for my students i mean i was just thinking about students who are home in apartments in the summer and you know and now and on quarantine who you know, have families and parents who are working from home and can't practice open bell. And uh, I just think, wow, what would I have done in that situation way back then? It would have been that Spivak, which I actually thought was a terrible mute. Um, it, it wasn't great. Well, it, yeah. <laughs> but it was the only thing we had. Yeah. So some people use a, even use a Dennis Wick cup pushed all the way down mm-hmm. with some cloth in it, which seems to work too. It's much more free right than most yeah. practice means well and now uh matt anklin a friend of ours who lives over in cincinnati makes the silencer which is a little stem you can put into a Harmon mute oh, turns yeah. it into a practice mute it works yep like i yeah. use that's one of the ones I've, I've carried with me like if i'm really tight with space and i need mutes i'll have there and in the hotel rooms that's all i need is that little stem it works it's we good we found that you found that we were doing one of our uh itg right uh, yeah, around yeah. the exhibit, thing, the exhibit the crawl, tour, the exhibit crawl. <laughs> yeah, Tartel exhibit crawl. It's amazing, Love the actually. Crawl. It's you have to do it. Amazing. You, we we should sell tickets to that. You could do guided crawls of the ITG exhibits. What's next year? Exhibits. Anaheim is that next year? Anaheim. Anaheim. That'd be I a think we place. have to go to Anaheim. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna have to go. I think we have to go. 
Yeah. I've been, I went to Anaheim last time it was there. Did you guys I'm, go that, to that? I missed that one. No, I was not at was that one. good. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely going to have to go. I missed it this year. There's a great it's breakfast place. I didn't miss being in Columbus. Caddy Corner. Man. Mm. So good. All right, Bill, what do you got for us Anyway, today? back. I, I want to talk about uh, this idea of specialty mouthpieces. So I have a lot of band directors. You know, everybody's looking ahead to marching band right now and – you know, there's this thing, and I've heard so many kids say this over the years, too, like, my marching band mouthpiece or my jazz mouthpiece, whatever it is, right? So I just I would love to know what you guys think about this. You got, let's say, 10, 12, 15 kids in your trumpet section right in your band. Same kids carry inside to outside. Only a small portion of them are going to end up playing first trumpet, right? Let's say probably even less than a third, maybe a quarter of the section is going to be put on first. And in that group, probably only one, maybe two of those kids are the hosses. I'm talking about marching men now who really have to pull the wagon and play those upper notes. Those are the only two kids that really would benefit or need any kind of specialty mouthpiece, like a lead mouthpiece, right, for lack of a better term. The rest of the section can stay on their regular mouthpieces and put a nice big resonant foundation on the section and leave it alone. But what I'm finding is that a kid playing third or fourth in jazz ensemble is switching to his 14A4A because that's his jazz mouthpiece, <laughs> right? And so the, the, the whole section just gets, there's no foundation within the trumpet section. Let him stay on there, hopefully three C's, one and a half, five B's minimum, right? Let him stay on those and fill out the section and just let those one or two specialists, those are the only kids that have a need for that mouthpiece. Thoughts? You want me to go? I'll go. Yeah. yeah. And Brian, I think this it's, is their trumpet mouthpieces we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, I think it's important to buy a, an adapter for your cornet shank mouthpieces. Oh, <laughs> of course. There it is. You have 12 of those for he your section. Everybody's on a straight three. <laughs> <laughs> a wick a three. Wick? Yeah, come on, Joey. Exactly. It's a wick For marching band, marching band. Yes. Yeah, with oh, an adapter oh, they put in their trumpet. <laughs> it's the softest marching band ever. <laughs> Uh, I think I think the the right tool for the job, right? And mm -hmm. it's it's the kind of sound you make on the marching field, um, somewhat brighter and it's the same in a in a jazz band. Somewhat more people might hear that it's more commercial, um, and that having a mouthpiece that's somewhat more compact or smaller might help make that sound. Um, but certainly in the low register middle of low register playing something shallow it's just kind of just thins out from what it could be that's and you what don't I'm saying. gain anything in volume or clarity no i think those especially those second and third sections or players just need to stay on their conventional mouthpieces yeah, sure yeah i think that's true for most and marching bands changed a lot mm -hmm. you know i'm somebody who grew up in the 80s in texas and you know i showed up for my senior year of high school and my band director had had commissioned this thing to be written for me to just stand on the 50 yard line and just scream out high cheese with a double C on the end. I was like, cause that's what you do, which was great. Cause the first five games, I just walk out, put my hat. And you didn't down have to march. Didn't have to march. I was not a, <laughs> not in, uh, loving that part, but marching bands also changed a lot musically uh, in, sure. in that time. So a lot of times you were not seeing the higher, faster, louder part of it because what Brian says, right tool for the job is important too. If you're doing an earth, wind and fire show, even on the second and third parts, if those kids are playing one C's, 
likely they're going to be trying so hard to match volume that they're just going to blow themselves out. And that may not be the right tool for the job while you're outside playing rock and roll. Yeah. Right. So it, that part of it is, is a difficult one to assess without knowing what they're playing and, and how they're playing. But, it, you know, as long as you're getting good, strong instruction about making a good sound and making good blend, then, yeah, you want to have the right tool for that job. You want to have the right mouthpiece there, which most of the time should be something unless you've got a kid who's really, really working hard towards being a trumpet player at that age. This right. prob- they don't need a handful of mouthpieces at that point. If you're, a, no. if you're a high school trumpet player that is in band because band is fun and you're having a good time, you don't need a whole bunch of mouthpieces. You need one that's going to let you do the things you need to do to be in high school band. Right. I, I guess what I run into is seeing that, you know, how many kids in that section anyway are going to be the kids you're allowing to cap things, right? There's typically, what I'm saying, one or two hosses out of 12 to 15 or 20 kids. So they're the only ones that really need that in order to do that job, right? So one step further then, um, what do you recommend? And this is tough because I get this question all the time and I don't know the student. I haven't heard him play. I yeah. base it on it, right? Description that the band director says. But do you feel that there is a go-to universal because I, I, I do kind of recommend the Shilke 14A4A because it's, Ugh. I know, but it's accessible. It's, it's starter a lead mouthpiece. mouthpiece to play. It is a starter lead mouthpiece. It's the three-bedroom rancher of lead mouthpieces. <laughs> yes. the, hard, the hard part is, and this is my own personal bias, is that when I was looking as a kid and somebody handed me a, a 13A4A, um, those Shilke rims on those mouthpieces, I can't play. Mm-hmm. So I had real frustration going from a, right. a, a conventional Bach-type rim to a Shilke rim and then going, how can people play high on this? And so I find that to be, a, it's a big change. And I don't like big changes. The bigger right. change than just the, the cup size and depth. Right. You're changing everything. If you're going Contour, from, yeah. uh, from uh, you know, a Bach-style mouthpiece mm-hmm. to a Shilke-style mouthpiece, you're changing every single aspect of that, which if a kid who's playing pretty well... I think changing everything is usually a, a dangerous proposition. Sometimes it can work. Okay, now I can I can get some high notes, so then kids are going to live with that because hey, I got high notes, so I'll stick with it. Right. So I'd rather go something more middle of the road. Uh, I don't so feel like yeah. If they're th- on a Bach three C, you suggest they get a three D or three E or something in the five D range. Mm-hmm. So you know, bring so the if diameter you look, in, little narrower. Bring the well. diameter in. Bring the cup up a, the floor up a little bit. Now, somebody who does this really well um, is Carl Hammond. You know, he, he's done a lot of work with uh, drum cores and stuff like that, and he's got a lot of variations there with some things that are stock things he makes that are good mouthpieces. He makes like, a, I think his 6S. People love this, mm. you know, and, and it's a good stock mouthpiece that you can buy as a good place to start and right. check that out, you know. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a hard one. Uh, because when you're working with equipment, I mean, I, you know, even when you get to college students that are interested and practicing and taking care of business, I'll have freshmen that often say, first semester, so am I, what do you think of my mouthpiece? Am I on the right mouthpiece? I don't know. I don't know you're playing well enough yet to yeah, make that assessment. You've got to get in and you got to know them. So the, I don't know that there's a universal, but there are some places you can start from that I think can What if they're playing well. a 14A, 4A when they show up into the studio? Mm. If it if it sounds, I mean, if they can make a really good sound out right. of it, and now if they can't, then that's something we talk about pretty early. <laughs> right. <laughs> what about the heavyweight mouthpieces? No. Do you know the trick there? Those things, they just open the throat up on them, right? 
Am I wrong about this? Generally like the, speaking, the that's megatone true. thing, they all came with like 26 throats. The weight mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, it's more about that than it is about the weight of the mouthpiece. Yeah. It makes it helps as long as you think it does. <laughs> so we can agree on this for directors. If, if, if there's anyone listening, the one director friend of mine who I think might listen to us. Um, we're kidding. Everybody's going to be listening. <laughs> this is going to be huge. It's going to be huge. We're going to we're going to say bring in the diameter of the mouthpiece and bring the floor up a little bit and we're we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. We can we can good agree place to, say to that. start. It's a good place yeah. to start. And if you're going to be yeah. outside, you might want to tighten the backboard too. Mhm. Mm you know, 29. Yeah. 30. That's the throat. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever <laughs> it takes. It works. <laughs> Come on. Not a symphonic backboard. Let's go with the 10-2 backboard, the big open backboard. I like that. <laughs> What's the old, remember the old Bach, one and a quarter, 24-24. 24-24. Remember that? Man. Yes. Yeah, that was Guilty. the, oh yeah, I have You got to have, you got to have I that. Have it. Yeah. If you don't have that, you're just doing it wrong. Apparently. <laughs> and that, those are the Osmond Brass days, right? That's yes. where you had to go to get that. Yeah. Crazy stuff. <laughs> well, we are sufficiently warmed up, I would say. And now to the heart of the matter, the focal point of today's show. How about today, gentlemen, under the, t the heading, couple things, I'd like to talk about styles of teaching. I'd like to talk about what we need to do to be the teacher that students need and... I think sometimes that takes on a variety of uh, a variety of angles, right? Are we the same teacher for every student? Do we retrofit what we do to each student that comes through the door? Would love to know your thoughts on this idea. All right, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about this. <laughs> I know you're shocked to think that so, I may have given this some serious in consideration. In the time I've known you, I don't know that I've ever said anything to you in conversation that you haven't responded. I've given this a lot of thought. When you're putting dishes in the dishwasher, do you there's, start from the... He's no, going to have an opinion. There's a right way to do there's, that. There it is. There why? It is. God, why? This is crazy. But would you teach <laughs> every student to do it the same way? <laughs> to well, load I, the dishwasher I, the same way? From that perspective, of course, because there's a right way to do it. But, but with triple players, this is interesting, because if you think... I think about this like I think about math. How many people have you talked to that say, especially college students, that they're bad at math? I hear it a lot when yes. I'm helping kids sign up for class. Oh, I'm just bad at math. I'm just bad at math. Yeah. I don't believe this because I've, I've taught math at a young, for young kids and I've taught algebra, mm -hmm. pre-algebra at middle school level. And at that age is where I think people decide or are told they're bad at math. And usually, at least what I've seen, is that you have a teacher, a math teacher, that explains things one way. Yeah. And if get you do teacher. not get it that way, you're bad at math. Right. So I sat down with students when, it, you know, talking about math, bad at math. No, no, math is, you know, when we're talking about fifth grade math, math is simple. Anybody can understand that. What about this? What about this? Give, it to, give them a different avenue in. And then they say, oh, huh, well, that makes sense done this with you know my own kids when they're saying well that's not how the teacher explained it okay do you understand it this way well yes now here's how you apply that to these problems so that you're showing so okay well that makes a lot more sense this is the difference in trumpet pedagogy 
Now, I think the biggest positive over the past 30 years is the change in trumpet teaching. There were teachers when we were growing up and a lot of the well-known teachers had the way they teach. Now that may or may not work for you. And if it works for you, you get in, boom, you progress, you win a job and you're great. And then they're a great teacher. Hmm. If it doesn't work for you, you just don't get it. Yeah. According to them, you just, well, that person just doesn't get it. That kid just won't get it. They're right. going nowhere. Doesn't have the talent. Doesn't right. have the background, whatever. Exactly. So what we Didn't need to be able enough. to do, right, you just mm -hmm. won't do it. What we need to be able to do is figure out how can I get this student to understand what I'm doing? Instead of, instead of saying, here's how I teach, and those students have to figure that out. Well, we're supposed to be the experts, <laughs> which means we should be the ones who are actually figuring out how to convey the information so that it's understood. So do I teach the same for all students? Conceptually, yes, because what my motto is, is meet the students where they are and help them get where they want to go. Right. So right. conceptually, that's what I'm doing, the same thing for all students. And is there's a large overlap in the, the amount of information I use. I use, like we were talking about, I use the Arvin's book, I use the Clark book, I use a lot of the same material, although maybe not always in the exact same way, depending mm -hmm. on what those students need. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the only one doing this. I think there's been a large shift in trumpet pedagogy over the last 30 years to this kind of teaching so that we can have much more success with many more students. Yeah, I, I mean, I this is the part about it for me that fascinates me. Like, I, I love teaching the trumpet. I love playing the trumpet and all that. But but ultimately, for me, it's it's a matter of getting this person from point A to point B. It's about the distance traveled. And they're not all going to come in at the same level, right? And they're not all going to make it to the same place either. But I think if you can, the goal should be to get that particular person from point A to point B for them, whatever that is. Yes, the concepts are the same. There's a standard uh, that you want to move toward in terms of their sound and their technique and all that kind of stuff. But but ideally, um, it's got to be tailored to the person. So I'm, I'm all about, this is the, fa again, fascinating part, teaching the person. What can you do to motivate that person to be a great player, no matter what their background or skill level is? coming in right because ultimately we're teaching the person we are teaching the trumpet but that's a vehicle we're teaching the person so you're saying it's not all about the trumpet with you it's not about the trumpet with me <laughs> i've been accused of that before <laughs> every day every day but i you know that's i want to i try to figure out who the student is brian and i just had a really great um we did a Zoom lesson with a student, right? And I'm, yep. I'm looking to find out constantly, is this a visual learner, a kinesthetic learner, an aural learner? And then how can you communicate the same concept differently to that student so that they latch on? You know, there's, you're trying to do the same. There's just different ways in, right? And that's, that's the really cool part. Yeah, and I think it's, an, it's a fascinating topic. And I think that the teachers who don't, um, who aren't flexible, they attract a certain student who wants to be a part of, I don't know, some cheerleading group um, so that everybody feels sort of rah, rah, rah about the studio. Um, and they know, well, I just, I just, that was the thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be part of that thing. And maybe I didn't get better on the trumpet, but I can go off and be a doctor because you get through performance degree, you can get through med, med, med school degree. Um, but I think it is important to reach more students um, 
and at their level, how they learn. And I think having this big conversation with you, Bill, recently was, was sort of transformative for, for my own teaching as well. And I think the students really, the students, because I, I see, saw the students for several weeks after that, um, mm -hmm. they really responded to that. Um, and right. then we used their, what they were predisposed to do as both leverage against um, a, something they weren't as good at and also as a way in to, to really accentuate and give them more access um, to music in a very different way using their strengths. So that was really helpful to me as a, cool. as a teacher as well. I think it's, as it's a really important point. You know, I would, I would say this too, and I know I'm just teeing this up and you guys are just going to light me up on this, but when I was younger, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, but what was I, it like I, back then? <laughs> when, Did you, you see the manuscript uh, of the Arben? I, so when life was in black and white. Right. I had a chance to do some edits on the Arben. No <laughs> offense, Joey. And, um, but I, I, I remember back, you know, when I, when I first started teaching at the college level and just there's a couple students that came in for a lesson and, and there are times when I was like you know and you guys tease me about this because I've told the story you're about to get thrown out of your lesson right right but and and <laughs> this is why but I, you know and so on and so forth and then I realized later that that is not it's not okay for me to do that like that's not a cool thing I'm there to teach them and I think one time actually Brian I'm no, I won't say the student's name because she recently sent me a text out of nowhere saying Thanks for never giving up on me when you should have, like when you <laughs> right? should have, yeah. you should have, like yeah. you were the only one in the room working several days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think Brian was there. You might even recall the student where it came in and clearly this was not prepared and no work and not ready and all that. And so I, I think I probably, I just figured out that it's more torture for them to have to be with me for an hour than to be thrown <laughs> out. Right. So we stayed and we worked and I practiced for that student in yeah. that moment, right? Because, yeah. and I wouldn't always do that, but in that moment, I thought that was the best thing to do. And of course that happens and you do that and you're the encourager and you, you kind of hope that it catches and, and you move on, you kind of pay it forward that way. Now we're talking about 10, 12 years ago and I just get a message a week ago that says, hey, I'm out doing these things, being still able to play, thanks for not giving up on me. Well, that's, I mean, that in my mind just affirmed the idea that throwing someone out of a lesson or taking that hard line, like we were talking, that's an extreme, you know, extreme case of, well, this is the way I teach and you don't get it, so that's on you, right? Now we're talking more about the personal side of it, but I, I kind of wanted to get into that today a little bit because how many, how many varieties of personalities and preparation and work ethic do we see? It's a lot. It's a lot. Well, I had a, a doctoral student at IU ask me years ago, she was teaching um, the undergrad non-majors and she came in and said I just need to talk to you I said sure what's up do you ever just tell somebody to quit and I started laughing and I said no never she goes, but, right. you know and she was dealing with some you know they're, they're non-majors they're doing this in their spare time there may not be a whole lot of practice involved and uh, she said but I mean some of these kids they're just not getting it and I said right maybe not right now if they're gonna sign up if they're gonna put in the work than I am too, right? Mm -hmm. Now, those times where what you're talking about, you know, the, the first lesson you show up at IU with me and you haven't practiced at all, we practice your stuff. <laughs> Saying, here's what didn't get happened this week. Here's, what, here's how you go about this. Here's what I'm noticing. You mm -hmm. hear that? Let's do this. Hey, you hear that? Let's do this. Hey, you hear that? And we'll spend an hour of that, you know, and say, this is what you got to be doing during the week. Now, gosh, I've been at IU 17 years now. 
uh, I have thrown one student uh, out who it was uh, multiple times in the same semester we'd had the conversation, we'd had the practice, we'd read duets, we've talked, we've worked, showed up and had done literally nothing. And I said, then we really don't have anything that we can accomplish today. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't mad or yelling or screaming, but, right. but one time, one time in an mm-hmm. awful lot of, of lessons. But yeah, are we going to give up on, on those students? No, well, that, not at it, all. That's a great, it's a great place to pivot in the conversation because, and this was years ago, I realized that we should never assume that a student knows how to practice. Even though, right, they're oh. a great college student. We've accepted them. They sound great. They come in. They've been working on those same three or four things to get ready for their college audition. For, they I mean, that's not realistic practice like they'll have to do when they get to us. So building a plan, you know, you do, you know, initially you think, well, I don't want to, you know, do I really back up that far with the student? Yes, absolutely. Assume that they don't know how to practice. Absolutely. I talk about this with yeah. my students all of the time because... I remember being young and people would say, go practice. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go home and I'd practice. And I got smarter as I got older and I figured out ways to practice. And, and at, at one point uh, I came to a huge revelation when I was 15 and I really thought I was cheating because I found a way to get to actually spend less time and get more accomplished. And I thought, <laughs> I'm totally getting away with stuff. And I wasn't <laughs> getting away with stuff. I was actually practicing smarter and getting better. So, but what I noticed when I started teaching little kids is this, they'd come in, I'd give them like a, you know, like a, a little four line etude, you know, simple little mm-hmm. etude. And the first four bars would sound pretty good. Then the second four bars would start falling apart. And then the third four bars would trail off and then they'd stop and go, well, that's as far as I got. So I would ask them, how do you practice? And overwhelmingly, and this was little kids all the way up into college students, I've asked them, how do you practice? And usually it starts with, well, you know, I have to practice for 30 minutes or I have to practice for 20 minutes. or So they look at the clock and they're like, okay. So they start at the beginning and you play until you make a mistake. Then you stop and you fix that mistake. Then you go back to the beginning and you play until you make a mistake. And then you stop and then you fix that and you go back to the beginning. You never make it to the end because, well, my 20 minutes are up and now I'm done practicing. It's just, so I, I absolutely never assume anybody knows how to practice. It's one of the first things we talk about in lessons when you, when you start studying with me. Your first lesson is an overwhelming diagnostic. I don't assume you can do anything right. on the trumpet. <laughs> yeah. And then we talk about, here's what I'm noticing strengths. Here's what I'm noticing weaknesses. Do you agree? Disagree? Let's have that discussion. And then here's where I think we should go forward. And here's how. Yeah. Here's how to do it. That's, um, this is where, for me, the transformative thing was the Talent Code book by Daniel Coyle. Mm-hmm. the what you know just brain function and how we learn and and for me you know i realized m- much too late that starting at the beginning of something is the worst absolute thing you could do like there are so many better ways to approach something by starting in the middle like arbon characteristic studies are a beautiful example i typically find a place around the middle of those that i can teach first and we can latch onto and just build a model for what what we want it to sound like and something we can accomplish and then Add a few bars before it, add a few bars after it. Then keep backing up. Just keep pulling the bow back until finally you're always practicing and moving into familiar territory. I mean, how to practice, this is another, it's another discussion altogether. But just as it relates to, relates to students and how we motivate them to do that, it's fascinating to me. So let me ask you a follow-up question. Do you assign, better to assign a whole bunch of stuff or a really small amount of stuff with very precise goals in mind? Does that depend on the student maybe as well? 
it, a little bit depends on the student. Generally speaking, uh, I start with shorter directed assignments. I want you to do these four things this like week. It. Oh, is that it? Like yes. It. And then mm -hmm. let's hear those. And then we have a place to jump off. Because then I will see not only were they successful in, in accomplishing the, those four things, but how did they do it? And if they weren't, then why not? Either way, then you have plenty of room then left in the lesson. If you, were, if you assign eight, nine things for a, a lesson the next week, you're going to spend the time just trying to get through all of those. Right. And then you're like out of time. Okay, now go do these things with virtually no instruction. So I, I do it for two reasons. One, I want to hear, okay, can you do this? Great. How did you practice that? How did you get to there? Okay, that sounded really good. Or, okay, you seem to be struggling. How did you go about this? Now let's go, let's go, let's go. And it, So the longer you go, the more stuff you get. Well, this this is like reminds me of the stories of like, um, you know, practice this etude. All right, come in. Great. Did you practice that? Good. Okay, play this one. Like play the next one, right? This sort of demanding sort of here's the list. This is the way we do it moving ahead. This like I'm thinking of, I'm tying it to the band world. Go ahead, all the conductor jokes you want. Um, of the, the Bill Ravelli, you know, um, authoritarian sort of like those kinds of things. And I, we... I mean, as a society, we don't deal, we don't function that way anymore. We just Isn't that your Broil story, Joey? Yeah. What right. I assumed you practiced that stuff. Now we're working on. Yeah, so I don't need to else. hear that. I don't need to hear that. You practiced yeah. it. Yeah, that was a Voizan story also with Mr. Couch mm -hmm. told me. Um, you talked a little bit about motivation too, Bill, and, and uh, Talent Code. And um, a few years ago, I listened to uh, another different podcast, not nearly as good, called um, Golf Science Lab. <laughs> Nice. Um, and and they had it. Um, they had a, in the in the very first season. They had a couple of podcasts with a couple of researchers um, in obviously in golf. Um, one from a University of Nevada, Las Vegas, a woman named Gabriella Wolf. Go running her, rebels. Her thing was wow. uh, all on uh, out of nowhere on uh, motor learning. Like she does all motor learning, like how we learn this physical technique. Um, and then she has a colleague at a school in California. I don't remember her name, um, but hers was on motivation. Like, so the, the, um, the emotional side um, and the research was fascinating. Um, one of the things they came up with is that as a coach, as a teacher, that if you, no matter what level of commitment you think your student has, um, whether they're really digging for all their worth or sweating, bullets all the time, they're really going after it, or they're kind of phoning it in every week, that if you're negative at all, that whatever learning is taking place, you're impeding that learning if you're negative. Yeah. Um, and, and so that then this guy was quizzing her like, well, what about a college football coach? And she said, I can just tell you that if you're negative at all, <laughs> if the student has not invited you in by saying, can you please tell me how I'm really doing? That if you say anything negative, no, that's wrong, incorrect, that you're impeding their learning, which I found fantastic and mm -hmm. interesting. And of course, I almost drove in a telephone pole because that was not me. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> two weeks later, I was, I was actually conducting, so, no offense, Bill, um, uh, nice. in front of a band. And, um, there was this, and I was conducting and I just completely turned everything on its head for how I was going to interact with the band. And um, one of the students, a uh, tenor horn player, she'd been playing in, in a band that I had conducted for four years. 
And, and about 35 minutes into the rehearsal, she put up her hand and she s- said, what's going on here? This is freaking me out. <laughs> so she knew right away. What's going on? Yeah. And then I did it in the studio and it gave students so much more space to, um, to experiment in their own practicing, in their own playing, um, to actually think about what they were doing. I had a couple students who were like, actually had space to actually talk in a lesson and, and um, talk about what their goals were and um, what they really wanted to do with their life. And it really wasn't in music. It wasn't in performance. And you've, the last few weeks, you've really given me this emotional space where I can actually have this conversation with you now. And I, I don't feel so freaked out about the trumpet all the time. So it's really interesting process well yeah you're not even going to get to the trumpet if all this other stuff is going on (laughs) and ultimately like well i know there's this focus even with you know like pre-service teachers right young music educators ready to go out there and content knowledge is so important but ultimately what we figure out is you're teaching the person right and you can have a ton of content knowledge and you can be as demanding as you want but until and unless you develop that rapport you're not you're not going to be effective of course but that is that that is absolutely true. I absolutely agree with it. What we've seen in the world is there are people who get high-profile jobs which attract high-profile students. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes, and I think we all know this, there are high-profile students that could go anywhere and they're going to have a really great amount of success. Agreed. Right? So when they congregate in one place, it, in some ways the kind of teaching going on isn't as important because those students are going to be driven or going to succeed. So that reinforces the tyrannical behavior of you got to do it my way because listen, my students all go win jobs. Yeah. Right. And we've seen it, you know, we've seen this happen and it's, it's, it's crazy, but it is true. You know, so when you look at like the college football model, so let me ask you the question. Once let's say your first job is coaching a really high profile uh, division one school that's done really well for years and you're regularly eight and four, you know, seven, five, nine and three, or, or you're regularly winning. Now you go, are you're obviously doing a great job, right? You're winning. You're doing yeah. the expectations of that job. So what if you start somewhere that has been zero and 12 and three years later are nine and three, mm-hmm. can you do it the same way? Those are mm-hmm. different jobs. Aren't they? Yeah. They are different jobs. I, I think what is in common here, though, and I'll, another shout out to Daniel Coyle, is the next book, which is The Culture Code that followed the talent code, right? Yeah. So here it is. And and I think that that's the mark of a great teacher going in and knowing, and this is what I really hope that we get to today, being whoever you need to be for that person. Right? I agree. But what I'm saying is at the winning program, at the winning school, the students you're getting don't need you to be that person. So if you're taking a student, let's just assign random numeric numbers, right? Sure. So let's say a student comes in and he's at 87% of winning a job. Right. And you got to get him to 95 or he can't win a job. Yeah, or he'll advance. It won't advance. Right. right? Yeah. So what? And so if you're teaching there and you're teaching a whole kids, a whole bunch of kids that are from 80 to 90 and you're trying to get them to 95. And at another school, you're teaching kids that are starting at 30 to 50. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is those are different jobs. They are, but what I'm saying is that what is I think is in common is that in both of those cases, you have to know what kind of culture to install or to build because using a culture, instilling a standard, getting students, motivating students is part an important part of teaching. 
really well. I, I agree, but I'm right, saying at, at the, at the big place. Is that what place, you're talking about, though, the cult, those cultures? Yes, but I'm saying at the big place, not only is the culture already established, but the students are more than halfway there. Mm. And I'm saying getting a student over the hump is certainly good. But getting a student who couldn't even get into that place over that same hump? Right. I'm saying it's a different job. That's, and yeah, sometimes that's a requiring a compl- uh, sometimes requiring different skills. Right. Yep. Now, here's an interesting one. Because given if you had a choice, and we work at we all at very different schools. Yes, we are. That's true. I like the second one. Well, see, that's the interesting part is in my maybe my I was only here a couple of years. And, as, you know, uh, I used to teach all of the jazz majors here and I don't do that anymore. We have somebody who's dedicated for that now. But this kid came in and he it, we had a French horn file for him and a trumpet file for him and a jazz file. And I said, what's going on here? And he's <laughs> from, from Indiana. And he said, well, I mean, I played French horn mostly in high school but I really wanted to play jazz, so I started playing trumpet in the jazz band. Right. But I want to be a jazz major, so I'm auditioning on jazz trumpet. I said, great, what do you want to play for? And he played a, a couple of etudes, and they really sounded bad. Fundamentally, this kid was a just not a good trumpet player. And I said, what did you play on your jazz audition? And he said, I played all the things you are. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I know we don't have a rhythm section here. Could you just, like, can you just play me the melody and play me one chorus? Sure, okay. And he played, and again, his fundamental trumpet playing was not good. But do, I don't know if you guys know the changes to all the things you are off the top mm-hmm. of your head, but on the bridge, it turns around to D flat and it turns around to B. It, it's awkward, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes playing through, and man, I can hear the changes going through. <laughs> <laughs> so he finishes and he walks out of the room, and I turn to John and Ed, and they were like, whew, that was rough. And I said, oh, I'm taking him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. And I said, are you sure? And I said, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of music in there already. I just got to teach him how to play trumpet. And isn't teach that pretty him much what we do? Right. So his first lesson, first lesson, he came in and I said, uh, I want to talk to you about your audition. And I told him this story. And I said, you don't really know how to play the trumpet. He goes, oh, I know. And I said, okay, good. We're going to be fine. <laughs> right. And he turned out to be great. But you yep. you hit my, my ongoing premise, right? You accept the person, not the trumpet player. Yeah. Right, and of course you want you have to know that they've got skills enough because you're not going to mislead them. You want to get them through the program. They have right. to meet a certain standard. But in this case, you're not going to turn that kid away because his musicianship is through the roof. Yeah, but, but you're going to have to roll I'm your saying, sleeves up and teach. I'm saying, oftentimes at a school like mine, mm-hmm. that's a kid Still who doesn't happens. get in. You yeah. just right. don't play the trumpet well enough. You're not getting in. Yeah, I like teaching the the um, projects. I enjoy that process. I don't mind coaching excerpts. I don't mind coaching solos. I, I like teaching music um, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. But I love seeing the light bulbs go off when they make that sound for the first time and it's so easy and they're, or the face is corrected mm-hmm. after six years of hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that spark and I really enjoy that. That's fun for me. Well, the majority, like like at our place, with the majority of students doing music education degrees, you'd know those working through those things are going to be really effective teachers. They've they've done, they've had the struggle. They know what it means. They're really invested in it. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, back to the Division One sports thing, Joey. Are we, are we, am I answering your question or are we covering that the way you wanted to? I mean, they're entirely different things. That's what I, I, yeah, that's what I want to get to because I think some of the, 
successful teacher uh, tyrannical behavior that we were talking about right. that exists exists because on the surface it works. Hmm. You know, you go to this school and this guy yells at you for three years or four years and then you win a job. Well, that's the model. And guess what? It does work. But I think that model needs some serious investigation hmm. of, okay, well, how good, how close were you when you walked in the door? So how much better did you really get? Right. You know, because just because it has the appearance of succeeding doesn't mean it's as good as it could be. Right. And that's more of what I'm, I'm more interested in. How good can it be? You know, I, I'm, I certainly want to see my students go out and win jobs, and that's always great. But I'm much more interested in getting those students as far along as I can. Because if it's just about taking a kid who's really good and making sure he's good enough to win a job, that's not a job I'm all that interested in. Yeah, right. right. But I yeah. think there have been and probably still are trumpet teachers out there that that's really what they're focusing on. You've got to do, you've got to check these boxes. And if you can check these boxes, then you can graduate. And that's not okay. Right. Yeah, in both of those cases, the student rapport with other students, right? That they, they're going to play a role in both of those things, maybe even more so at the, at the upper echelon division one school, right? Iron sharpens iron, right? I mean, I think it does at the lower, not the lo the lower level, but in that other environment as well, right? But that's I I think that's a big part of it, and how much of it is it on is on the teacher to develop that culture, right? I think a lot, right? A lot. I agree. Kind of is is going to define it, but I understand what you're saying about going in and using that sort of environment in that way to make it happen. Sure. Yeah. Fascinating. That is really interesting. Right? Yeah. Um, but I know that you would hope that if somebody is really into it, into the art of the teaching idea part, right, that they really think about that, who they need to be for what particular student. And it's okay to be a different teacher to different students, right? Because I think you have to, for me anyway, I'm thinking about building what I do to try to get that student to the same place it might feel like a ton of work to me where this student just breezes through. But that's okay because that's... I, don't even, I would say uh, go a step further and say it's not okay. It's necessary. Right. Yeah. If you're exactly the same to all of your students, it's not possible to get yeah. the best results. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a beautiful point. That's, the, that's, that's the, the place I'd hope that we would get to, and I'm shocked that episode four and we're agreeing again. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> weird. <laughs> on something, except for Brian's cornet keep bringing it oh, up. come on that's and something we can all agree you, on you brought up conducting nearly every time this is I, not called the open baton i'm just helping you guys i'm just teeing <laughs> the open <laughs> baton i'm just teeing it up it should, <laughs> come on man you missed it it's the open turtleneck <laughs> you completely do i have to do everything <laughs> i have to answer the phones at this place i gotta exactly do everything right. yes yeah. you do i've got to do it all but yeah it's it's the fascinating part for me and i'm glad we uh we really have a chance to to get to it so that's cool all right let's uh let's move on um finally we reach the portion of the program we like to call no offense this is where we highlight something from the trumpet kingdom that is recognized used and touted yet might not make so much sense to us pedagogically we feel it's our responsibility know our duty yes i said duty to highlight such things to raise awareness inform the masses and generally start trouble today's topic and you're gonna like this one No 
note testing. Oh, Are yes. you the kind of player that just has to check that note before you start playing that excerpt on your audition? If you are, stop it. No offense. You must stop the note testing. Oh, there is someone that you know. We will not name her as she's just uh, got let's, a job. You know, let's just call her Sarah. For example. Exa completely Just as a name to use. Just so we don't stumble and... Pull it out of thin air. Just right, to make I, up just a name. Generic name. So first thing that popped into my head. As an undergrad, Sarah, just to Sarah. use a name, mm -hmm. was a severe, severe note tester. So I said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna build a better habit here. This is not a habit we're going to continue. So every time you put her horn up, boop. No, we're not doing it. Put your horn back down in your lap. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Put it back up. <laughs> Okay, now here's what we ended up doing this. Put the horn down on the floor, sit back up. We'll talk for a second. Pick your horn back up and just play me this etude. <laughs> horn up off the floor. Oh, and then started getting frustrated. And that's what helped break that habit. But uh, it is infuriating. And I am not somebody with perfect pitch. I'm not somebody with the greatest ears in the world. But you have an idea of where you're going to start and then I am not a dip your toe in the pool guy. You need to jump in because there's two problems with note testing. One, musically, it's really annoying. Mm -hmm. But trumpet wise, <laughs> it's not playing the trumpet well. Nobody tests going tall. Nobody makes a good sound when they're doing this. They're going <laughs> just to get an idea of that pitch where they're going to start. Right. So you're practicing playing the horn poorly and non-musically it's a double negative just not there's no reason to ever do it so do you think and and, and again hypothetically here this sarah h i'm sorry just just sarah do you think that <laughs> do you think in in this case that uh it was a conf it's more of a confidence issue right i mean she's a confident trumpet player let's say i don't know her you know like hardly at all and so um is it that she wasn't confident musically or was it just so type A that she had to dial that in before she started? And I think it can be a wide variety of issues. I think for, for, for Dr. Herbert, Sarah, oh. for example. <laughs> so um, it was a confidence thing. It was that I need to make sure of where I'm going to start. So I just want to know and I want to have that security. It's a secu it was a security blanket right. that you need to do away with. We've heard her play the trumpet. She does that really well. She's really good. Yeah. She can really play. Yeah, we are. We're, Theoretically. We're, yes. It, I mean, if, if it, if it if were Dr. Sarah Herbert, the new professor of trumpet at Western Kentucky University, uh, if, again, if, for if example, it were her. Purely an example. As an example. She's yeah. terrific. A great player and a great teacher. Yes. Yeah. Well, it has so spillover, spillover too, to auditions. So I heard a story about a very famous uh, trumpet audition. Um, where um, they got to the finals and it was, I don't know, five or six people. And the, the excerpt that came up was Credo from B minor mass. Hmm. And, um, and every player um, picked up the piccolo and played a couple notes on it. And one player <laughs> did not <laughs> and drilled it and held the last note for about six beats too long. <laughs> Just in case there were any questions in the room. <laughs> that person won the audition. Beautiful. Um, so, so yeah, it can have spillover. Um, it could also be that a student is not, not only not confident in their ability, but not confident enough emotionally that they're willing to miss. 
So you have to build that into your system that if I miss, it's okay. Right. And, uh, you know, and, that, that's yeah. part of the learning process. And we're trumpet players. We're going to miss. <laughs> that's right. Yes. You know, that idea. I, I, I was at a camp a, a couple of years ago and there was a, a TA, a uh, college student who was there and he could play some, I heard him warming up, warming up, up to double C's, plenty of range. I didn't know him. I was like, great. So about the third chart in the rehearsal, I said, hey, why don't you play lead on this one? The shout course goes up to a high E flat right in the middle of the shout. Lays great, nice medium swing chart. I thought he's going to sound great on this. He'll feel confident. It'll be good. Crash. <laughs> Miss. Hey, let's run that one more time. Go back. Nothing. So after the rehearsal, he comes over and he's like, man, I'm really, I'm sorry. I got you. know, like, how, how do you not miss the E flat? And I said, oh, it never occurs to me that I'm going to miss. <laughs> and, and he looked at me and I said, now you're going to play next to me. You're going to sit next to me for the next two weeks. You're going to hear me miss plenty. Right. I'm just, but I, my thought process is always like, this is going to sound great. You know, and it, it's yeah. building that thought process into this is going to sound great. And then you listen back and go, okay, I know I got to go practice now. <laughs> but yeah, you, you're exactly right. It's it, having that up. Uh, not just trumpet confidence, emotional confidence of being able to just start and start confidently right yeah. in the middle of it. Well, you have students, you'll need to think about it too from an audition perspective, right? What's the old commercial? You only have one, you only have one chance to make a first impression. Right, right. right. You know, and so, you know, there it is, pick the horn up and confidently play. But the note testing sends a lot of messages that you don't want a, a committee sure. to <laughs> to get right? none of which are good yeah no offense which way is kentucky from here no <laughs> i mean if that's who we were talking about <laughs> as an as a theoretical example completely theoretical example well that about does it for today thanks for joining us on the open bell stay tuned subscribe to whatever works for you we appreciate your patronage and so do our sponsors who have no idea what they've gotten themselves into so long for now remember to keep an open mind but more importantly an open bell